Let us pray for the preaching of the Word of God. Father in heaven, we are continuously amazed by your faithfulness to us and are reminded that it is true that you will not let us out of your loving hand. Nothing in heaven and earth could ever separate us from you. Lord, as we draw near to you and as we meditate upon your word, I pray, Father, that you can show us your purposes for us in this life and that how we, together as a church, has been called to your service joyfully, not under slavish fear, that we may enjoy you and enjoy each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but statistically, there is somewhat of a crisis going on in churches around the world right now. The Barna Group did a survey that found 59% of Christians between uh, ages 18 to 29 in the U.S. who used to routinely go to church have stopped going. In Indonesia, the numbers are a bit more encouraging. The Bilangan Research Center did a poll that shows around 90% of Christians between ages 15 to 22 still attend church regularly. But based on the reasons they stated for why they come to church, only one-third said that they come because they love Jesus, and only 19% say that they come because they want spiritual teaching. So they concluded that almost 50% of young Christians who regularly attend church are at risk of either leaving church or moving churches. For various reasons, then, also, for those who have stopped going to church regularly, 61% said that they have found church to no longer be interesting or useful to them. So basically, 61% of Christians who aren't at church feel like they found something better to do on a Sunday. And these numbers just put into perspective what people who have been working within the church have been troubled by for years, right? The fact is, the church is both aging and declining. And the church has been having this really difficult time retaining the young people who once attended church. Hence, many churches now are really interested in strategizing about how they can attract young people and about how we can make young people feel connected again to church, or else the church is in trouble, right? Let alone reaching out to non-believers, the church is having trouble or we're struggling to keep our own people. So how will the church survive this crisis? See, the good news is that it will survive because the church, friends, is God's institution. It is God's initiative. God built the church, and if God is really Almighty God, He will not fail. And although the Bible doesn't give us a surefire formula that will boost church attendance, helpfully, it turns out, the Bible has ascribed to us a way the church has survived for generations in context that's relative to ours, is much more full of challenges and dangers for followers of Christ. And I think if we apply the principles that the church has done in the past in our context, the church will not only survive, but thrive. So, if you're a regular here at CCC, you would know that we've been studying through the book of Acts, and a huge theme of this book is how the gospel has this unprecedented power to gather all kinds of people, the ability to uh, to turn strangers into siblings and foreigners into family. And as we continue on our series today, I think today's text describes the essential reasons for why 
the church will continue to survive and the gospel will continue to advance despite living in a world that is relentlessly against us. So let's read today's text and hear what God has to teach us. Taken from Acts chapter 17, verse 1 to 15. This is the word of God. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the, uh, before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogues. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off by his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Brothers and sisters, what we just read are two parallel stories that focus on the polarizing reactions to the gospel message in the neighboring cities of Thessalonica and Berea, specifically amongst the Jews. Right? And they responded with either curiosity or hostility. And in this story, we see how the church has responded to the hostility the gospel faced in these areas with unity. So from these stories, I want to point out three things that we can do to ensure that the gospel will continue to go forth despite facing hostility. Our three points. The church will continue to survive when, one, we simply preach the gospel, two, we are prepared for the polarizing effects of the gospel, and three, we commit to stand together for the gospel, okay? You don't have to get all these points down now. We'll get them, we'll come back to them later. And due to the nature of the text, I'll be jumping around a little bit to highlight key details in the text. So please keep your Bibles or your liturgy printouts open so you can follow along with me. Okay, so point one. The church will survive when we simply preach the gospel. Right, so here we see Paul, Silas, and Timothy, our team of protagonists now in the book of Acts, back at it again, 
the, in their mission to spread the gospel in the Greek-speaking world, this time in Thessalonica, which is a huge city in the region of Macedonia. It is today the second largest city in modern-day Greece, and also in Berea, right? A pretty big neighboring city around 160 kilometers away, right? It's like the Bandung to our Jakarta. Now, in verse 2 and 10, we are told basically what Paul's SOP was in his evangelism. He and his team would go to the synagogues on Sabbath, on Saturdays, and there people would intentionally gather for worship. And at that time, Paul would intentionally preach from the scriptures. Now, this wasn't the only time and place where Paul would preach the gospel, right? Being an evangelist and a missionary was his full-time job. And later in verse 17, we are told that he would actually go to the marketplace every day to preach the gospel. But the synagogue on the Sabbath day was a particularly strategic time for Paul to share the gospel. Because not only Jews were gathered there at that time, but also Gentiles who were interested and attracted to the God of Israel. As you've seen before with Cornelius and Lydia, God-fearing Greeks and women of high standing. And we're told twice in verse 4 and 12 that a great many of them came to saving faith in the Messiah through Paul's ministry in the synagogues, along with the Jews who's grown up studying the scriptures. Therefore, friends, it seems clear that Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to emphasize to us again that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah that has been foretold by the Hebrew scriptures, has somehow this universal appeal that attracts people that comes from cultures that would normally be against each other to come together as family. And if you've been following in our series, it's not surprising at all, because we've seen this over and over again in the book of Acts. Last week, Tezar preached about three people from completely different socioeconomic situations come to follow Christ. We've seen throughout the book of Acts, people like the Ethiopian eunuch, a crippled man by the temple, and even Paul, the former church persecutor himself, come to faith in Christ. And it shows how indiscriminately inclusive the gospel is. Literally anyone, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter what you have, anyone who wants grace can find it in abundance if they come to Jesus. So the question is, friends, what is it about what Paul was preaching that is so universally appealing? Verse 3 actually gives us a summary of this. Luke writes that, Paul was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. In this little sentence, friends, Luke communicates to us what is the essence of Christian faith. That sentence right there is the gospel. And although it's not that elaborated in this particular instance, if we read the sentence in light of what the New Testament has thought, especially Paul in his letters, the short sentence brings into view three main things that shows why the gospel is universally relevant for all people in every time. First of all, in the title itself, the Christ. Right? This brings into view that the Bible talks about how there is this plan of redemption that the creator of heaven and earth has for the world. It assumes the whole biblical narrative that God created a world that He generously filled with goodness for Him to enjoy with His images, with humans, yet we humans have failed to trust Him, 
for what is good and chose to acquire goodness on our own terms by our own effort. And this led to sin entering God's good creation, messing everything up, rupturing our relationship with God and ruining our relationship with each other while polluting God's good world with our evil. But God is determined to not let his good creation, his beloved creation, remain this way. Rather, through the scriptures, God promised to send a king, an image of God, who is just and righteous like God is. The Christ, who is himself, God himself, taking human form. He will be the one to cleanse the world of its evil and unite a broken and divided humanity making us all again part of one family where God is head of the household, a family where our relationship with God is reconciled and in a restored creation where there will be no more sin that hinders our enjoyment of God's goodness with our new family. And how he will do this is the second thing the sentence brings into view, that the Christ must suffer. This brings into view the fact that the Bible teaches us that the Christ, God's chosen king, is not going to defeat evil and reign over nations like any earthly king through violence or dominance. But it is in fact by addressing and defeating the biggest threat to his creation, which is sin. The rebellion against God that makes us all guilty before him, the cause of our suffering, the reason why we deserve the punishment of death that is coming for us. Hence, the only way to deal with this problem is for our king to suffer in our place. For him to obey God like we were supposed to, but then to die the death that we deserve on our behalf for our failure to obey. And those of us who've been to church who believe know that Jesus Christ did this for us on the cross. So it is finished. Because the Christ has suffered, We are now free from the guilt of sin that enslaves us to death. And now we are free again to have and enjoy this restored relationship with our Creator. Therefore, the last thing that little sentence teaches us is crucial. That it is necessary for the Christ to rise from the dead. You see, friends, because Jesus didn't stay dead after he was crucified, this proves to us that God has accepted Christ's sacrifice that his mission to free the world from sin was successful. And because Jesus was raised and his sacrifice has covered for our sins, therefore God will abundantly pardon us, the ones for whom Christ died. And therefore we too will be like him, raised and be brought to glory, to enjoy this face-to-face fellowship with God, having this goodness of God unhindered forever the glory that we were created for. Do you see, friends, how this message is relevant for all people in all times? It provides for us a solution to the fundamental human problem, the sins that led us to hurt one another and separates us from God. But because now the Christ has suffered and was raised from the dead, we can live knowing that we have peace with God. And assured that no matter how dire their circumstances will be, there is a much more glorious future ahead of us, a future where all creation will be reconciled to our Lord. This is the hope the Bible wants to give us, the reason God is telling us we should repent of our sinful ways and follow Him. 
And if we never depart from relentlessly preaching this message, we can rest in the assurance that we're not giving people our opinions here at church or some false hope. But although imperfectly, we are truly speaking on the behalf of God. So we have faith that His sheep will hear His voice and will follow Him because we know our shepherd's voice. That there will always be, in every generation, God's sheep who will hear His voice. You know, the same survey from the Bilangan Church Center that I mentioned earlier also found that 60% of the people surveyed thought that the most beneficial part of church is the sermon that's preached on Sunday. That leads me to think that no wonder so many churches in Indonesia are declining. Because what we find way too often is that God's message of reconciliation is not what is preached. Rather, the gospel is at best simply a way to get into the door, but once we're in, what the church offers is you know, community, life advice, some moral principles, or even miracles to bless our earthly lives. Right? You've been to those churches. You know what I'm talking about. And this is a losing strategy. Because the gospel is meant to be why God's people are in love with Him. They're meant to be why, it's meant to be why we stay in church. And if the gospel is not what we preach, eventually people will find there are plenty of alternatives that offer the same thing with much less commitment. But in any case, if you get a nice band and a funny guy on stage, large crowds will come for sure. But that's not what's going to change lives. That's not what's going to get people into heaven. That's not what's going to reconcile our relationship with God. Only a genuine faith and relationship with God can do that. And this relationship is only possible through belief in the gospel message. And the role of the evangelist, the pastor, and Christians of the church is to connect people to the gospel message. Simply preaching the gospel is the only biblical way for the church to grow. Now, although... This is the faithful way to gather God's family. It might not be the most popular or inoffensive way. Because the reality is that if we believe in the gospel message, it will turn our world upside down. And we shouldn't be surprised when the sinful world and our sinful heart become resistant to this turning upside down. Just point two. The church will survive when we are prepared for the polarizing effects of the gospel. Now look at verse 5. The Jews in Thessalonica didn't take too kindly to the Jesus movement that started there through the ministry of Paul and company. And in our translation, it says that the Jews were jealous. The Greek word there, if translated literally, would be like zealous, or they were passionate. They were mad. Now our passage didn't discuss specifically why the Jews were mad, but this wasn't the first time the Jews were mad at Paul and the other apostles in the book of Acts. And what our text particularly focuses on here is contrasting the responses of the Jews in Thessalonica with the Jews in Berea to the gospel. And three things can be pointed out in this contrast. First, right, that the Jews in Thessalonica tried to silence the gospel by force. They went out and formed a mob of the wicked men of the rabble. 
these guys were some thugs that would hang out in the marketplace, right? Some preman pasar. And they attacked the house of this guy, Jason, who was probably a Jewish Christian, who they were suspecting of hiding Paul and his accomplices. So it looks like what happened was is that they violently turned against one of their own and attacked their home in order to silence his belief. Now, we should be extremely grateful to God that most of us here do not experience such threats against our safety because of our faith. Though we must remember that many of our brothers and sisters around the world still do experience similar levels of persecution. But if we are really trying to boldly communicate the gospel as Paul did and simply stand firm on what the Bible says, we will experience pushbacks. Even in a relatively open and cosmopolitan place like Jakarta, like, did you know that our country actually has some pretty restrictive rules that prevent the advance of the gospel message, right? We, it's, there are rules and regulations that make it practically impossible for churches today to start their own denomination, to build and own their, place of, their own place of worship. And do you realize how delicately we must tread while preaching the gospel here? Right? I mean, you don't see Christians on the street like you would in Melbourne or New York just preaching from a soapbox or giving out pamphlets in the gospel. Right? That would actually be illegal here in Indonesia. And not only in these legal ways have our faith tried to be silenced by the world, there is much social and professional pressure here to keep our faith to ourselves. I mean, how well, let me ask you, because you work, a lot of you, in the secular world, would it go over with your boss if you refused to do something for work because you had previous church commitment? Let's say you can't finish that urgent assignment that suddenly come up, or you can't go on this work trip because you've committed something to church previously. How would it go? Like, how many times have you felt pressure to affirm that all religions are equally valid and have been indirectly told to keep your faith to yourself? Even here, friends, there's resistance to the gospel. Because there's always will be resistance to the gospel. Because ultimately, the values of the world are at odds with the teachings of the Bible. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And in truth, it will always seem like foolishness to them because the ears of the sinful world are deaf to the hope that the gospel offers Rather, it fixates on what it hates about it. Which leads us to the second thing that the Thessalonians Jews did to silence the gospel. They tried to discredit the message by distorting it. Look at verse 6 and 7. After the Jews didn't Paul, uh, find Paul in Jason's house, they turned to the authorities and accused the Christians of propagating some political rebellion against the Roman Empire. Right? It was a very dangerous thing to do. It was against the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that held the empire together at that time. And so these Jews tried to poison the well by making it seem like Christianity was threatening the status quo by portraying it as some dangerous political ideology instead of what it actually is, a message of grace, 
which in verse 8 it turns out they successfully did so and a lot of people were disturbed because of the gospel now is it true what the jews were saying about what christians believe that jesus is king absolutely but that ever mean that we're ever to rebel against local authorities by no means because king jesus himself in fact said give unto caesar what is caesar's and Paul himself clearly taught in Romans 13 that all authorities are appointed by God. But the Jews were not interested in presenting charitably what Christianity actually teaches and what Christianity wants to tell us about our relationship with our local government. They were only interested in making a caricature of Christian belief, a straw man that could easily be burned. And isn't this, friends, what's happening in the media? We only need to tune in and watch a little bit to see that much of the time, Christianity is not portrayed fairly at all. And the gospel that the Christianity we believe in is actually about is barely discussed. But what we see is mainly scrutiny towards our points of views that are controversial to the culture. Wanting to paint Christianity as some kind of backwards, repressive, or foreign belief system. In many ways, the cards, the deck, is stacked against us. So trying to proclaim the gospel in this world can be a very discouraging thing. Because not everyone who we share the gospel to will believe, and not everyone will appreciate that you're actually trying to do them a service. So pretty much, failure and rejection is a given. It's part of the deal. And those two things definitely aren't two of my favorite things. But the beautiful thing is that if we persist to preach the gospel, like Paul has, we will certainly see the fruits of our labor. Look at verse 10. After Paul was driven out of Thessalonica, the narrative tells us that he basically did the same thing in Berea, preached in the synagogues, but then in verse 11, it turns out the Jews there didn't respond to him with hostility and animosity like before, but with curiosity. Paul's preaching actually encouraged them to search the scriptures more deeply. Such that in verse 12, it says many of the Jews in Berea believed, unlike only some in Thessalonica. Now, sorry, my iPad messed up. Anyway, now, the only difference the text tells us that the Berean Jews had from the Thessalonians was that they were more noble. Now, this word, noble, that's translated there, is actually eugenes, right? And it means something like noble birth. It's actually where we get the word eugenics from. And it's not saying that the Jews in Berea were richer or more educated or racially superior from the Jews in Thessalonica were, right? But the text is pointing here, actually, to the fact that there was something already in them that somehow made them more receptive to the gospel message. So it wasn't like preaching the gospel wasn't enough to move the Jews in Thessalonica. Nor was it something about Paul or some trick or gimmick that he used in Brea that made him more popular. Rather, it was simply that. The Holy Spirit had been working already amongst the Berean Jews such that their hearts responded with eagerness to the gospel message instead of the prejudice that prevented the Thessalonian Jews 
from hearing and giving the gospel a chance at all. And this, friends, is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the only one capable of softening the human heart, making it alive as it was dead in sin, and making it open and able to see the beauty of the gospel message. Because in the end, friends, even though the gospel solves humanity's deepest issues, the human heart is always naturally resistant to the gospel. Because the gospel will turn a sinner's life upside down. We can never be the same after believing in the gospel. So we shouldn't be surprised there's resistance in the hearts of our sinners, like our own hearts, to have these change. Because these might be costly and radical changes in our lives. We cannot relate to people the same way before. We might not be able to do business, to make money, to behave like we used to before we know the gospel. It's hard. And not everyone is willing to receive it. Therefore, the task of evangelism, friends, the work of Christians who are preaching the gospel is not to convince sinners to repent and believe. Rather, it is to filter out those in whom God has already started working. Because the comforting reality is, friends, that the Holy Spirit has gone before us to break down barriers, to open sinners' hearts, and soften them that they may believe in the gospel message. If this was not the case, there can be only despair in our efforts to preach the gospel. But because it is the case, we only have hope and optimism that the gospel will be heard by those who God has prepared to hear it. So you must persist preaching the gospel, for it is the only thing that works. Now that being said, the world that has hardened its heart will determine, be determined to stop the gospel from progressing. The Thessalonian Jews saw the gospel as that much of a threat that they followed Paul to Berea, right? Like 150 kilometers away, and that's commitment in a time where there are no highways and cars. Yet despite their persistent efforts, by God's grace, the gospel has continued to go forth and it will continue to do so because there will always be believers who would stand together for the gospel, which is point three. The church will survive when we commit to stand together for the gospel. Now, have a look at the ways the church has responded to the hostility and persecution they were facing at the hands of the Jews and the local authorities. We see three things. First, we saw Jason, the guy whose house the Jews attacked, uh, remain loyal to his fellow Christians. Not only did he refuse to sell out Paul and company, despite the pressures and threats he was facing, he sacrificially put forth some of his own wealth as a guarantee that Paul and the rest of the church will not be causing them any trouble. What generosity. Second, we saw that the brothers smuggled Paul and company out of Thessalonica by night and accompanied them all the way in to Berea. There were no cars back then, so this would take a couple of days. And when they saw the persistence of the Thessalonian Jews coming for them, they again helped Paul out by sending Paul, snucking him out to Athens by sea so that the Thessalonian Jews could not follow them. You see how much commitment and solidarity that exists there. 
And thirdly, in verse 14, we interestingly see that Paul left Silas and Timothy there, and he traveled to Athens alone instead of taking them with him. One reason is because Paul was definitely the ringleader of this whole movement and was a wanted man, less so with uh, Silas and Timothy. Yet, we must remember that in verse 2, that Thessalonica was actually a baby church. It was only three weeks old when Paul was driven out. And the church in Berea wouldn't have been that much older. So what it seemed like going on was that Paul wasn't just about to leave these baby churches to fend for themselves, but left his co-workers there to fend for them at first. And in fact, we know that from 1 Thessalonians 3, that Paul in fact sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on them and encourage them and minister for them for a while. See, and how was it that Paul and company and these really baby embryonic churches have such a mutually committed and loving relationship? Well, look at the title that the book of Acts constantly uses to refer to groups of Christians. They're not colleagues, buddies, or partners, but fellow Christians are called brothers, siblings, who are working together in the family business of making the gospel of Jesus Christ known. And it's like that line in Lilo and Stitch. You know, Ohana means family. Family means nobody gets left behind. See, the problem here in Indonesia is on the macro scale, the church don't treat each other as siblings who are co-workers, but as competitors trying to vie for some market share in this industry. And on the micro level, on the level of individual Christians, Indonesian Christians are tend to be sunkan towards one another, right? We hesitate asking for help because we don't want to be a burden to one another. But brothers, this need not to be the case. Because if we really and truly internalize the mission of the gospel is to be done together, and that God really calls us to have each other's back and to stand by each other, not only will the gospel be preached more widely and effectively, but each and every one of us will also get to deeply experience the reality that God has really called us to be part of one family. Now, those of you working in a family business might know that working with your siblings can be a complicated thing, and there might need to be some healthy boundaries in place. Nonetheless, with that in mind, let us, as the church, wisely and actively be thinking about how we can collaborate with other Christians for the sake of the gospel mission. Institutionally, CCC is working along with uh, some other faithful churches in this organization called City to City, who uh, seeks to equip, resource, and train future church planters and revitalizers in Indonesia. And I don't usually like to sabut merek, but I do want to give some of our members some love. I know quite a few of you are working with Illuminations, an organization dedicated and resourcing uh, Bible translations in Indonesia, an exceptionally meaningful work. And there are others who are involved with organizations and ministries like Unica, who are equipping Christian parents to disciple their children faithfully, also incredibly meaningful. 
And I'm sure that a lot of you are involved in other things that I'm not aware of. But the point is, the opportunities are out there. And if you're not involved in the initiatives, in any initiatives that advance the gospel, I really encourage you to avail yourself to these opportunities. For it has always been the case that Christians coming together for the gospel has always been and will continue to be how the church moves forward in a hostile world. And if any of you right now are struggling in this hostile world, financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, or otherwise, please know that we are here for you. God has called us as an, as an institution, as individual believers, to have each other's backs, to sacrificially take care of each other, and to equip one another such that we all can live out the calling that God has given us. So please, give us a chance to show the gospel to you. And of course, why we want to do this, friends, is we firmly believe that our Lord has given his life in order to reconcile us along with all of creation to himself. We have a God who died for us and for all nations. We have a God who is for us and is committed to us to the point of death on the cross so that we may have forever eternal and lasting hope in him. This is the most valuable and important thing we can never tell anyone. And why wouldn't you want to see everyone around you live in this everlasting hope? However, if you've yet to receive this hope, a hope that can unify all nations, a hope that can compel what people who used to be strangers to sacrificially love another, this hope is available for you right now. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you have become part of our family, part of our ohana, and we, like God, is committed to not ever leave you behind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, blessed are you, Lord, King of kings, Lord of all nations, who have gathered your children together from the place that you have scattered us, who have united us under your truth and under your gospel. Lord, write your gospel on our hearts. Make it foremost on our minds and remind us that it is the reason why we have come to you. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, the beauty of the gospel is never lost on us, that we continue to return to it to edify our lives and that in our unity, in this belief in your gospel that we may love one another and get on board with your mission to make yourself known amongst all nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.